The FDA is updating the definition of healthy and designing new labels. The agency says this will help people make better decisions about what they eat, but not all nutrition experts are convinced. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, October 6th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. How to encourage Americans to eat healthier without creating stigma about body size and weight. That story's coming up. This week, Oklahoma enacted a law that targets gender-affirming medical procedures. Courts have temporarily blocked similar laws, but advocates are worried. This puts a terrible pressure on both the family and, honestly, our most vulnerable population, which is transgender youth. Also head French writer Annie Ernaux is the latest Nobel laureate in literature. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. A week after Hurricane Ian, power has been restored to all about 2% of customers in Florida. In hard-hit Fort Myers Beach, restoring power won't be possible until structures are rebuilt and safe to be reconnected to the grid. NPR's Greg Allen reports the greatest challenges will be restoring power to southwest Florida's barrier islands. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says power restoration has gone at a record pace and is now ready to begin on Pine Island after emergency repairs allowed the causeway to reopen. The biggest challenge may be bringing electricity back to Sanibel Island, where the bridge was washed out, cutting it off from the mainland. We have taken via Chinook helicopter utility workers onto Sanibel, and they are, they are looking, but I mean, that is going to require a massive effort. Further north in Sarasota County, DeSantis says supermarkets and other businesses have reopened, and the county says centers to hand out relief supplies are no longer needed. Greg Allen, NPR News. President Biden visited an IBM plant in Poughkeepsie, New York today to promote his administration's plan to revive semiconductor chip manufacturing in the U.S., He said America invented those chips and should be a leader again. When factories that make these chips shut down around the world, the global economy literally comes to a screeching halt. More Americans have learned the phrase supply chain and what it means. Well, guess what? The supply chain is going to start here and end here in the United States. The Biden administration has secured $52 billion in subsidies to rebuild the U.S. semiconductor industry. At one time, the U.S. produced more than a third of all chips in the world. That's now down to about 12 percent. IBM says it will invest $20 billion over the next 10 years to make and develop advanced technology. Victims' families from the Robb Elementary School shooting and others affected by gun violence met with Democrats in Uvalde, Texas, yesterday to rally for gun reform. Texas Public Radio's Marian Navarro reports. Cristina Delgado's daughter was in middle school in 2018 when a gunman killed 10 people at Santa Fe High School. While unharmed, her daughter says she no longer felt safe at school. Delgado spoke at the event and says state leaders have failed to keep promises they made to protect students after Santa Fe. We will push and we will meet. We will send emails. We will march. We will advocate. The activists call for Texans to support common sense gun safety laws, including increased background checks and raising the minimum age to purchase semi-automatic weapons. Governor Greg Abbott's office said in a statement federal courts have barred efforts to raise a minimum age and continues to work on solutions to address mental health. I'm Maria Navarro in San Antonio.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Legalized sports betting in Massachusetts is on hold until early next year at the earliest. Gaming regulators say they're still trying to agree on when the new legalized program should launch. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. Members of the State Gaming Commission today rolled out a potential timeline for a sports betting launch. Under the initial framework, retailer in-person betting at sportsbooks would start in January. Online or app-based wagering could begin in February, the month of the Super Bowl. Commission Executive Director Karen Wells says hopes for an earlier launch would be unrealistic. This is the most aggressive that we've got at least a shot of making. At least one member of the commission wants that aggressiveness to be scaled back. Commissioner Nikisha Skinner says she's worried the proposed timeline is too compressed for regulators to do thorough work. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. For the first time in more than three months, gasoline prices in Massachusetts have gone up. AAA says a gallon of gas in the state costs $3.51 on average. That is up two cents from just yesterday. Massachusetts is getting $145 million through the American Rescue Plan to expand broadband access. The grant is expected to connect 16,000 households and businesses that still don't have access to high-speed Internet. That's about a quarter of the number without access. Senator Ed Markey says to be offline in our digital world is to be excluded from opportunity and disconnected from the community. Even with the recent rain, all of Massachusetts is still considered to be abnormally dry. Today's weekly report from the U.S. Drought Monitor shows Cape Ann and the North Shore remain in an extreme drought. Boston and Cape Cod are among the parts of the state that are still classified as being in a severe drought. 70 degrees now, beautiful day out there, blue skies. A few clouds should move in overnight tonight, temperatures in the mid-50s. And for tomorrow, some clouds to begin with. Sunshine through much of the day, though. Highs in the mid-70s, sunny and cooler on Saturday and Sunday, both temperatures in the upper 50s to low 60s over the weekend. 70 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston, with events, book recommendations, a book club, children's story hour, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com. And Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. What makes a food healthy? It is a complex question, but the Food and Drug Administration aims to help answer it with a new food package labeling system. The last time the agency defined healthy was back in 1994. That was at the height of the fat-free diet boom. NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us now to talk about how the idea of healthy has changed. Hi there. Hey, Juana. Good to be here. So, Allison, tell us about these proposed changes. Well, there's really two things happening here. The FDA is updating its working definition of healthy as it pertains to food labels, and they're developing a new healthy icon or symbol for food packages. The aim really is to have packaging reflect the current nutrition science, which has really evolved a lot over the last 25 years. So, you know, things that passed as healthy or qualified for a healthy claim back in 1994, like white bread or highly sweetened yogurt or sugary cereals, simply because 
because they were low in fat, would no longer be able to have a healthy claim on the packaging. And I'd say the FDA's guidance on this is, you know, overdue. The fat-free boom is long gone. It's widely recognized that some fats are good for us. We need them. So we could a new healthy icon on food such as avocados, nuts, seeds, fatty fish like salmon, olive oil. You know, health-conscious people may be listening to this and saying, it's about time. Okay, so why is this happening now? You know, the change comes at a time when the Biden administration has prioritized a goal of improving Americans' diets. And this is given that diet-related diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, heart disease, are top cause of death. Uh, this was a big focus at last week's White House Food Conference, and the labeling initiative is really part of the administration's new strategy announced at the conference. I'd say it's also a moment when culturally it's become a bit trickier to talk about food and diet, given the pushback on diet culture and body shaming and the real guilt and shame people can feel linked to body image. Yeah, and those are all really important concerns, but all of this just strikes me, Allison, as incredibly complicated. Yeah, you know, a lot of healthcare providers and public health experts say it's really important at this time to both recognize and validate these concerns people have while at the same time helping people understand that our diets, what we eat, does play a significant role of preventing or promoting chronic disease. So given how tricky and fraught this all can be, how is the Food and Drug Administration approaching this? Well, the FDA is really a regulatory agency, and their approach is to kind of go by the science and to listen to, as they like to say, all their stakeholders, which does include the food industry, the companies that market the foods we eat. Where the agency has landed on this is that a healthy icon could help empower people with helpful information. I spoke to Susan Maine. She's the director of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at the FDA. Most consumers will make decisions in a few seconds on whether they're going to purchase a product or not. So having something like healthy that can be on the front of the pack can help consumers make those quick decisions. So is there a consensus among nutrition and health experts that this is going to help? I think there are mixed opinions. On the plus side, if someone is choosing between two packaged foods and one has less salt, less sugar, and more healthy fats, qualifies for a healthy icon, that could be helpful. But there are limits to green lighting foods on packaging. I mean, many of the healthiest foods don't come in packages. At a time we're told to eat more whole foods, more fruits and vegetables, there's criticism that a healthy icon kind of misses the mark. I spoke to Marion Nessel. She's nutrition professor emerita at New York University. I don't think we need health claims on food products at all. They're not about health, they're about marketing products. If you're really wanting to eat healthy, you're going to be eating real food. You're not going to be eating products with labels on them. I think her take is not shared by everyone, but it does show how hard it is to kind of reduce healthy eating to a simple icon and really to promote healthy patterns of eating. We likely need a whole bunch of broader initiatives, you know, nutrition education, cooking classes, and integrating food and nutrition into the healthcare system. That's NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you. Thank you, Juana. As Allison Aubrey mentioned, the topic of what we eat and what's considered healthy can be incredibly complicated. It's something Virginia Soul Smith has thought a lot about. She's the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. We asked her to speak with us earlier today. Thank you for having me. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because your book really teases out the fact that 
it just feels so hard to feel good about the food that we eat. And I, when I think about the idea of putting more rules in place or changing the rules around food, it doesn't really seem to address that. What's your take? No, 100%. I think that's right. I think when we put a label like healthy on a food, we're immediately triggering this whole larger cultural context around that word. And we're setting people up to feel shame, to feel like, is this something I can eat or not eat in a way that is really counterproductive to the goal of health. We can have this debate about what healthy should mean according to nutritional science and according to what the latest research says, but that's completely ignoring the context of most Americans' lives. I mean, the whole idea of a, quote, healthy food is deeply problematic in a country where a million teenagers every year develop eating disorders and nine million kids aren't getting enough food to eat on a daily basis. And, you know, the other thing that comes to mind for me is that when we boil down our discussions around food to just the nutrients, we are erasing the fact that food is not just about fueling our bodies. It is also our culture and its connection. And for me, at least, I find eating pleasurable. So how is how does one find a balance? Well, healthy eating should include all of those things. And I'll be really curious to see when we see what foods get this label how that aligns with, you know, our different cultural understandings of foods and whose foods are deemed healthy and whose foods are not deemed healthy. I think it absolutely intersects with race and class in really important ways. I think, you know, what we know is that when people have more restrictive mindsets and more rules about what they can and can't eat, that tends to fuel disordered eating in a whole variety of ways. So, Virginia, given all of that, What is your advice to people who are trying to do the right thing, who are trying to feed themselves well, but who are absolutely overwhelmed by what is often conflicting advice on just how to do that? I think the best thing most of us can do is just stop reading food labels full stop. I think getting ourselves fed and fed in ways that feel good is the most fundamental goal. Most of us are not able to meet that for a whole variety of reasons. And when we make that our top priority, getting a variety of nutrients tends to work itself out, you know, assuming that you can afford the food you need. You know, I know so many people, and frankly, even for myself, this is a conversation and a topic that takes up so much headspace. And frankly, it comes with a whole lot of heartache. So I want to ask you, is this a solvable problem? How do we eat and feel good about it when we get up from that table or from our desk or wherever we're having that meal? I think it is a solvable problem, but it's a problem that's happening on a lot of different levels. There's your individual struggle. Then we have to step back and say, this is also happening on a larger societal level. These are structural systemic issues that our society, that the FDA has decided to define health by these narrow nutrition-based standards, which are also weight-based standards. That's a larger issue we need to address where we start to shift away from thinking of health as this matter of personal responsibility, this thing I need to get an A plus on, and instead start thinking of health as a social issue and as something that's largely determined by genetics. It's also determined by social determinants, things like your economic status, again, your ability to access food, access health care. And I think we're really doing a disservice to the entire conversation about health when we get fixated on, well, how much fat should be allowed in a cookie in order for it to be counting as healthy. Like these, like, these are really minute issues in what's a much larger conversation. 
That is Virginia Soul Smith, author of The Eating Instinct, and she writes the newsletter Burnt Toast. There is also a podcast by the same name. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. In other news, the Biden administration is increasing efforts to fight scams targeting student loan borrowers. Fraud is flourishing, while borrowers wait for more details on the administration's sweeping plans for student debt forgiveness. NPR's Meg Anderson reports. The White House is going to cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt for as many as 40 million borrowers. But since that relief was announced in August, the government has released very little information about the application process. This Biden forgiveness thing is Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Fourth of July all rolled into one for the scammers. Betsy Mayotte is the president of the Institute of Student Loan Advisors. She says that vacuum of information has created an opportunity. Here's an example of a suspicious call one borrower in Texas shared with NPR. It's urgent that you return my call to complete your application prior to when payments resume. There are evil people who will be trying to use a program like this and run their own frauds and scams to somehow get money or personal information about people. And we want people to know how to steer clear of that. Richard Cordray is the chief operating officer of Federal Student Aid, a branch of the Education Department. To try to hold potential scammers accountable, the administration is increasing communication across agencies in the federal government. They also plan to coordinate more with states so attorneys general there can bring their own cases. It's an all-of-government approach because what we know is it's already happening. But a lot of that work falls on borrowers themselves. The White House is planning on partnering with social media influencers to educate borrowers. Officials say don't give out your personal information to unfamiliar callers. And applying for debt relief is not going to cost money. One way to avoid some of these scams in the first place would be to release more information on the forgiveness application. We're moving at warp speed to get the application and the process going here to get as much relief as possible to the hardworking former students who deserve this relief. There are still no clear details about what the application for loan forgiveness will look like or when it will be released. Meg Anderson, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the crisis in teaching abortion procedures in med school. On Wall Street, stocks fell for a second day today. The Dow lost the most ground, 1.15% or 347 points, to close at 29,927. S&P gave up 1% to finish at 3745. The Nasdaq lost 0.68% to end the day at 11,073. The investment firm Eaton Vance Corporation has signed a lease for more than 282,000 square feet in an office tower in Boston's Post Office Square. Eaton Vance is moving a few blocks from its headquarters at International Place and downsizing its office space by about 20 percent as part of the move. The Boston Business Journal says this is the third largest office lease deal in greater Boston since the pandemic began. It's 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. 
70 degrees in the Boston area now, bright and dry today, unlike the way it has been. Overnight tonight, look for some clouds moving in and should have temperatures around the mid-50s. For tomorrow, gray skies to start, but then sunshine eventually breaking through, highs in the mid-70s. Saturday, sunny and cooler in the upper 50s. Sunday, more sunshine in the low 60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Insperity, providing HR support for 30 plus years, including access to benefits and HR technology. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Fox News found itself in an almost impossible spot after election night 2020. The network had just called the key state of Arizona for the Democrat, Joe Biden. Then all hell broke loose. Now a $1.6 billion defamation suit against Fox by a voting technology company is revealing more about how the network acted behind the scenes, including its CEO. NPR's David Folkenflik joins me. Hey, David. Hey, Mary Louise. Take us back to November 2020. What did all hell breaking loose look like for Fox? Well, it was an intense moment. You had uh, President Trump and his allies essentially denouncing Fox, which had been this very receptive channel uh, for the Trump campaign, publicly as well as privately. A lot of pressure being brought to bear on Fox's journalists, its anchors, uh, the Murdochs, who are the controlling owners. And Fox started to bleed viewers. You ultimately saw a couple of things. First, Fox, weeks later, ultimately purged two editors who were involved in the call of Arizona for Biden, although they never took back that call. And you saw many hosts chasing Trump loyalists, their core uh, Fox viewers. Some even went all in, like Lou Dobbs, who's now gone from the network, Maria Bartiromo, Janine Peru and some others still there. There was the airing of false conspiracy theories and lies about election fraud uh, from Trump and his allies. So what have we learned about how Fox responded to this crisis? Well, Dominion Voting Systems uh, is an election tech company that was at the center of some of these allegations that were ventilated on Fox and and given a lot of airtime. They're suing Fox for defamation. Fox says, hey, we're merely covering inherently newsworthy claims by the sitting president and his allies. We got to cover that. But as a result of this suit, as you suggest, we've learned a lot. Suzanne Scott is the CEO of Fox News Media. She uh, warned colleagues, we can't give the crazies an inch. Uh, other executives at the network tried to stop Lou Dobbs and Maria Bartiromo from bringing on uh, Trump's uh, campaign attorneys, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, because they just say repeat lies. And NPR earlier revealed an email in which a producer begged her colleagues or begged colleagues not to let Pirro on the air after the election, saying that Pirro was just recycling untrue conspiracy theories taken from dark corners of the web. I, I mean, I guess, David, we already knew that false theories were being aired on Fox. So for the court case, legally, why does this matter? Well, it goes to this idea of actual malice, which plaintiffs, people suing uh, media outfits, have to prove in defamation and libel cases. The idea is you have to either show they knew that what they were putting out there was false and defamatory or hurtful, or that they acted with reckless disregard. In this case, 
Dominion's lawyers are arguing this all shows that Fox executives knew uh, what was going on and that they had influence over the shows. They knew that it was wrong. Uh, they're now getting contracts to try to prove uh, that the uh, there were profit m motives for these executives to get big ratings, but that they also had operational control written into their workplace contracts. Uh, you know, Fox's lawyers in court, we've been listening. They've been saying essentially, no, no, these guys are acting kind of like absentee landlords. They weren't micromanagers in that way. So quickly, what's the timing? What happens next? So Dominion is uh, trying to get more questions put to Jeanine Pirro and Sean Hannity under oath. Uh, they say that there are 60-some depositions ahead for the next 40 days of the trial process. And there's a court date still in April. A lot of legal wrangling to come. And PR Media correspondent David Folkenflik. Thank you, David. You bet. There are about 6,000 residents in the U.S. training to be OBGYNs. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has far-reaching implications for them. Katie Riddle has more. She was a third-year resident when Dr. Alyssa Caldwell knew reproductive health was where she was meant to be. Taking care of a woman who had four little children at home, was parenting alone, um, was in an abusive relationship. Providing her an abortion, says Caldwell, helped this patient break free from that abusive partner. You know, and it's stories like that that stick with you for the rest of your life. Today, Caldwell is working to provide the same kind of experiences to her residents. She teaches obstetrics and gynecology at Oregon Health and Science University. This is our clinic uh, workroom. It's 8 a.m. In a few minutes, she and her team, including residents, will meet here to prepare for the day. Yeah, this is where the magic happens. She'll see 14 patients today. Some will be seeking abortions. She'll bring residents with her to every appointment. Among other things she's teaching these new doctors, empathy and compassion. There's only so much you can learn from a book, and medicine is is truly an art, and it takes years of experience to become competent, and not only competent, but really good at our job. Oregon has strong laws protecting abortion rights, but the path forward is unclear for doctors at teaching institutions in states where abortion is now restricted. When Roe fell, we texted each other like the moment that it fell, and we cried. Dr. Laura Jacques teaches obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we don't cry very easily in medicine. We're pretty stoic people. Abortion is now virtually illegal in Wisconsin. Without patients, there is no training. Jacques says they've been working for years to cultivate comprehensive medical education for future OBGYNs. And to have that just suddenly, all of that work that we put into it just erased in an instant was incredibly demoralizing. An estimated 44% of OBGYN programs are in states where abortion is illegal or in jeopardy. The organization that accredits these programs says they are committed to requiring abortion training for OBGYNs. Institutions still have to find a way to provide it in order to meet accreditation requirements. Teaching hospitals are exploring options like simulations or sending residents to other states. There are no clear solutions. I truly cannot overstate how catastrophic the overturning of Roe v. Wade is for reproductive health at large and for medicine at large. Dr. Kavita Vanaker is with the group Physicians for Reproductive Health. There are aspects of what we do in abortion care that are used in so many other settings within OBGYN and reproductive health more broadly 
that are often life-saving. Vinegar says a doctor with limited abortion training may not know how to care for a patient experiencing a miscarriage, for example, or an ectopic pregnancy. Jessica McClowski is finishing medical school at Tulane University School of Medicine in Louisiana. She's not applying to residency in states where she can't get abortion training. She says many of her peers aren't either. They're willing to risk not matching into a residency to be at a place that will give them the training that they need to become abortion providers. It's not just future OBGYNs. McClowski's planning to become a pediatrician. She's especially interested in working with teenagers. It's a population that is extremely vulnerable to the lifelong impacts of unwanted pregnancies. I don't want to set up my patients for failure in the future because I'm not allowed to discuss things that will directly impact them. She says training in abortion is not just about learning clinical procedures. It's also about learning how to talk to patients. If I'm in a state that I could potentially be sued or worse for just discussing these things with a patient, it's really scary. Not just scary for the doctors, but scary for the people who need care. Advocates fear doctors will avoid training and practicing altogether in states where abortion is illegal. And that means real harm for patients. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, how recent allegations against Georgia's Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker are affecting his chances with voters. The week looks like it's ending a lot drier and brighter than it began. Today's sunny skies should give way to partial cloudiness tonight, down around the mid-50s, so not too chilly. Tomorrow may be overcast in the morning, but sunshine later on, inching all the way to the mid-70s. Then it should be sunny, dry, and cooler over the weekend, including on the holiday Monday. 70 degrees now in Boston at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Davis Malm, committed to knowing the lay of the land, not just the law. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And Peabody Essex Museum, with after-hours events, spooky tales, films, and more this October. Info at pem.org slash Halloween. Women are back in the post-pandemic labor force, but not all of them. It's not full-time. I'm not able to have, because we don't have child care. The labor force participation rate, except without everybody participating. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. That story next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Florida was already dealing with a volatile property insurance market before Hurricane Ian drenched the state, flooding many homes. Now, as Talia Blake of member station WMFE tells us, that storm has only made things worse. According to initial estimates from CoreLogic, there will be more than $28 billion in insured losses from wind and storm surge. Florida's insurance consumer advocate Tasha Carter says that's the most damages the state has seen from a single hurricane. The last update that we've received relative to insured losses associated with both Hurricanes Irma and Hurricane uh, Michael 
uh, combined was an estimated $30 billion. Um, and I think those two storms also resulted in uh, approximately 1 million claims filed. Carter says the State Office of Regulation issued an emergency order temporarily suspending all planned policy cancellations or non-renewals. For NPR News, I'm Talia Blake in Orlando. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made good today on a U.S. pledge to help developing economies transition away from carbon sources to clean energy. Yellen announcing a $950 million loan to the Clean Technology Fund to help countries like South Africa, India, and Indonesia accelerate their move away from fossil fuels to wind and solar power. Yellen also noted ongoing threats that dominate the world stage, including the pandemic and Russia's war against Ukraine. To confront the evolving challenges facing the global economy today, we all have jobs to do at home. In the United States and many other advanced economies, this means reigning in inflation while providing targeted support to those most impacted by rising prices. Today, a U.S. Fed official said more interest rate hikes will be necessary to get inflation under control. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Legislators on Beacon Hill today asked the department that oversees the MBTA to explain why it should stay in that role. Some lawmakers say the Department of Public Utilities is not fit for the job. A federal report cited poor oversight as one reason for safety problems at the T. WBUR's Simone Rios reports on today's hearing by the Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities and Energy. Committee co-chair State Senator Mike Barrett says lawmakers are ready to look at ways to remove T oversight from the DPU. One possibility is creating another agency altogether that's independent of the governor. Barrett put DPU chair Matt Nelson on the spot. So we should be quiet and just let the status quo continue? Well, if, if the status quo continues, that's a problem. And that's not acceptable. I, and I don't think I've delivered that message at all today. What I am saying, though, is... We are in the middle of expanding the division and trying to invest in the people. Nelson says the DPU is having an incredibly difficult time finding qualified applicants for transit safety jobs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Three Western Massachusetts colleges are now opting to extend mask mandates indefinitely because of COVID-19 activity. Mount Holyoke College has joined nearby Smith and Hampshire colleges in deciding to keep mask rules in place. Mount Holyoke's president says she's concerned about COVID case counts of about 50 per week on campus. Neighboring Amherst College is considering a new mask mandate that would begin in mid-October. Boston-based startup Motional is partnering with ride-sharing giant Uber to launch a driverless taxi service. Uber plans to place Motional's autonomous vehicles in several U.S. cities later this year. The companies are not identifying the cities right now. In 2020, Motional agreed to a similar partnership with top Uber competitor Lyft. This is WBUR. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. Open house October 13th for careers in psychology, leadership, and mental health. Scholarships available, williamjames.edu. After a stunning day today, we should have a few clouds moving in tonight, lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow morning, clouds then brightening skies as the day continues, making it all the way to the mid-70s tomorrow. 70 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place. 
with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More than a week since Hurricane Ian made landfall in Florida, the city of Bonita Springs is still assessing the damage. Deputy Mayor Mike Gibson took to Facebook Live this week to share a video of the destruction at Bonita Beach. Behind him, you can see mountains of debris, destroyed buildings, fallen palm trees, a boat strewn over the sand. As you can see behind me, this area is hit very hard by Hurricane Ian. First responders have been in the area conducting search and rescue. This is a tough time for our community. Please stay safe, and together we will get through this. Well, Deputy Mayor Gibson is on the line with me now from Bonita Springs. Welcome. Hi, I'm Mary hey. Louise. Hi, glad to have you with us. Um, we just heard you describing the scene at the beach. Tell me about other parts of the city. I know you've been out and about. How how bad is the damage? Um, well, the the storm surge came up and you know hit the beach first, but we also have a river that goes right through the center of town. So the surge just came right up the river, and flooded many houses along the river and a couple of creeks that feed into the river. Um, so as you go around the city right now you just see basically everybody's entire life out at the street because they've had to gut their entire house, all their belongings are out, out there, just trash, you know, waiting to be picked up. Yeah. And do you all have power back? Do you have water? Sounds like too much water, but, I mean, do you have water <laughs> in pipes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, luckily, um, our, our uh, local utility company, uh, they were able to keep water for the majority of the city. Uh, they tr preemptively turned off water to the, the uh, barrier islands just to save the rest of the city. Um, so we never had a boil water notice it or anything. Yeah. Uh, pa power, very, very few places had power the entire time. Most most places lost power. Um, but uh, it's it's on almost everywhere except for uh, places where, like, trees took down the individual line going to a house uh, or, like, telephone poles got snapped. Things like that take a little bit longer to fix. But um, we're, we're almost up to, I'd say, probably 90% power. Yeah. I'm thinking you must have residents who evacuated um, who are now heading back to their homes or trying to figure out how to head back to their homes, which may have been damaged or even destroyed. What are you hearing from them? And, and do you have any advice to prepare them for what they might see when they get home? Um, it really depends on where they live. Uh, the, the bulk of the city, it's going to just look like a bad storm, tree limbs down, things like that, a lot of debris. Um, it, it's really the people that are coming down uh, where their houses are right on the river or out on the barrier islands. Right now, um, the, out on the barrier islands, we're only allowing people to walk to their houses to help with looting and, and other things. Um, but it uh, should be starting Saturday. They'll, they'll be able to drive out there. The, uh, we've been working with the county to get the road reinforced because when the, when the storm surge came in, it, it washed away a lot of the dirt under the road. Parts uh, of the road started collapsing. Right. Right, right, right. So you're worried about sinkholes and about road accidents on top of everything else. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, just in the in the few seconds we have left, um, the president, President Biden, was in Florida yesterday. He was announcing more aid. He said the federal government will cover 100% of costs for things like removing all that debris. Um, do you expect to see any of that money soon in Bonita Springs? 
Um, yeah, yeah there, it's a process, and, and traditionally it's only 30 days. Um, thankfully, the president's already upped it to 60, um, and, and our congressman, uh, Congressman Byron Donalds, is uh, working on a plan to get that up to 120 days. So I, I really hope that the president will, you know, stand with our congressman and, and try to get that done yeah. up to the 120 days, um, because we, okay. we just had, a, you know, the hurricane five years ago, and, and you know, it takes a while to get everything in submitted. To get back so on the extra time would be great. Bonita Springs Deputy Mayor Mike Gibson, thank you so much for your time. Good luck. You're welcome. Thank you. This week, Oklahoma became the latest state to enact a law that targets gender-affirming medical care for transgender youth. Courts have blocked other such laws, at least temporarily. It is all part of a turbulent, fast-moving clash over transgender rights, as NPR's Melissa Block reports. Courts in Alabama and Arkansas have put the brakes on laws that banned gender-affirming care for trans youth, care such as puberty blockers or hormone treatment. Meanwhile, in Texas, for now, two courts have blocked the governor's directive to investigate parents for child abuse if they provide gender-affirming care for their kids. But even with those laws and policies put on ice with temporary injunctions, families are worried about what's to come, says Ann Miller with the LGBTQ advocacy group PFLAG. And some families are having to make tough decisions. Should they move? Should they look at getting a job in a different state that's more affirming? This puts a terrible pressure on both the family and honestly our most vulnerable population, which is transgender youth. This year, Republican-led states have introduced and passed record numbers of anti-LGBTQ bills, most of them focused on transgender rights and especially targeting trans youth. Medical care bans, sports bans, bathroom bills. Jillian Brandstetter calls the trend a cynical race to the bottom. She's with the American Civil Liberties Union, which has challenged many of those laws in court. So far, she says, the results are encouraging. Judges have really read these bills for filth. They are openly discriminatory. They are openly in defiance of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Brandstetter says recent court rulings blocking the laws give her comfort, and she hopes they send a message to transgender youth. They are not alone in this fight. These bills are, frankly, written by amateurs, and they will be undone by transgender professionals at the ACLU and at a lot of our partner colleagues across the LGBT rights movement. Partners, such as the advocacy group Lambda Legal, where Sasha Booker directs the Non-Binary and Transgender Rights Project. She says she's heartened by judges who've considered these cases and have sided with science rather than stigma. Yeah, it definitely um, reinforces my uh, faith in the judiciary. You know, it's a huge relief. But Booker cautions that, given the large numbers of Trump-appointed judges now on the federal bench, she's bracing for other unfavorable decisions. Do I think that we're going to win every case that we bring? That's unlikely, but I think that we're going to continue to win the vast majority of them. Supporters of laws that target transgender rights are undeterred. The fact that there's a court case that goes one way or the other here or there, I don't think it tells us anything about where this is going to go over a five- or a ten-year period. Jay Richards directs the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Conservative Heritage Foundation. Gender-affirming care is, in his words, sex-denying. He rejects the idea that gender identity can exist apart from biological sex. That's a highly tangentious philosophical idea that I wouldn't even grant. My view is that biological sex is a relevant and real category. Males and females are real things, and we should have laws that respect that. 
those laws are spreading rapidly in Republican-led states. Legislatures in 18 states have enacted sports bans that restrict transgender female athletes from competing on teams that match their gender identity. Courts have blocked enforcement of several of those laws. Six states have enacted so-called don't-say-gay or trans laws, censoring classroom discussion. As for trans medical care bans, later this month, the Arkansas law will go to trial before the federal judge who issued the temporary injunction against it last year. It's the first such case to go to trial and will be closely watched. Melissa Block, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. California has stepped up to help in the Colorado River crisis. Southern California specifically is offering to use 9% less water a year, which could really help out neighboring states. But California wants something in return, too. Alex Hager reports on the Colorado River for member station KUNC and is here to explain. Hi, Alex. Howdy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So this summer, the federal government told the states that share the Colorado River that they needed to write plans to take significantly less water due to the decade-long drought. California has now been the first to respond. And how do they plan to meet this goal? Yeah, Southern California is proposing to cut back by about 9%, and they're still sorting out the details of who exactly will give up how much water. But this is a deal that's bringing together suppliers for farms and cities alike. So the four agencies involved kind of have the ability to spread out the impact of those cuts. And this announcement comes amid mounting pressure for them to use less. The federal government asked the states that share the river to conserve. And, you know, a lot of those states responded by pointing fingers at California, which uses by far the most water from the river. So now this is California's response. They're they're coming out with the first major water conservation deal since the feds asked for cuts. Okay, but what are they asking for in return? The California group is asking for federal money to help with the Salton Sea. It's this big salty lake that gets filled with irrigation runoff from nearby farms. But when there's less water heading to California, that lake dries up and then all the salt and dust that's left behind, it's causing an ecological and health crisis for the area. Okay, and their request, how is that landing with the feds? It's hard to say right now. You know, this was just announced yesterday, but we do know that the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, which runs the big dams on the Colorado River, they're getting $4 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act. And I've got sources telling me that the bulk of that will go to projects in the Colorado River Basin. So these California agencies could be trying to get a slice of that funding to help with salt and sea issues in exchange for their plans to conserve water. Thinking big picture here, you know, drought is ongoing, reservoir levels keep dropping, and yet 40 million people still depend on water from this river. Is all of that giving a new sense of urgency to these negotiations? Absolutely. Uh, This river is supplying people from Wyoming to Mexico, and right now it is just really on the ropes. There is a lot of demand, and every year for the past 23 years, there has been less water to go around. The situation is dire, and that's coming across in this deal. There's a lot of tension between cities and agriculture, so it's not every day you get them to sit down together and agree on something. Uh, Devin Upadia is the assistant GM for the Metropolitan Water District. They serve about 19 million people across Southern California. The nature and severity of the condition that we're facing right now on the river really has caused 
I think everybody in the states, but in particular in California, all of us to try to band together as agencies and figure out how we can contribute and be part of a solution. All right, Alex. So in the time we have left, what is next for the rest of the states that use water from the Colorado River? Well, we haven't seen any other tangible plans for new conservation, you know, elsewhere along the river. When the federal government started putting on the pressure, they threatened mandatory cutbacks, but states called their bluff and said they didn't think the feds had the legal authority to do that. So far, the federal government has not followed through, so it is still up to the states to come up with conservation plans. There's a chance this California deal will help get the ball rolling for more states to do something similar. And when I talked to the designers of the plan, they said that was their hope. That was KUNC's Alex Hager. Alex, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBR's All Things Considered, will the allegations against Georgia's Senate candidate Herschel Walker influence Georgia voters? That story and Nobel Prize for Literature coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon, snhu.edu. And Cambridge Science Festival. What happens when fashion designers and scientists work together? Find out Saturday when Boston Fashion Week teams up with Cambridge Science Festival to bring you the future of fashion. See runway shows, wearable tech, 3D printed outfits, and so much more. Visit cambridgesciencefestival.org. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. Should actually be able to see the sunset tonight. Only a few clouds around for a change, but there may be more overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, clouds may linger in the morning. We should have some sunshine for the bulk of the day with highs reaching the mid-70s tomorrow. Then for the weekend, bright skies both Saturday and Sunday. Cooler temperatures in the upper 50s to low 60s. Looks like the holiday should be sunny as well with temperatures in the 60s. This is WBUR. It's 449. WBUR supporters include LabShares Newton, freeing up biotechs to focus on difficult diseases at state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities. LabShares.com. An artist sets out to illustrate and elevate America's Black pioneers. What I wanted was a collection of our accomplishments that we could just see for ourselves. We should know who our titans are. One artist, hundreds of portraits. I'm Kimberly Atkins Store. That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It has been a rough week for Herschel Walker, the Georgia Republican Senate candidate. Walker has run a campaign emphasizing family values. He says he is against abortion and has pledged to support a national abortion ban. Now he is facing accusations that he paid for an abortion for a former girlfriend. This is something Walker denies. He is also facing renewed allegations of domestic violence from his son, Christian Walker. So how might these revelations affect a tight race in a key state? We'll put that question to Emma Hurt, who has been covering the Walker campaign for Axios. Hey, Emma. Hey, Mary Louise. Start with the tweets this week from Walker's son, Christian, um, who's been a regular on social media. He has not been shy about sharing his own conservative views, but he has steered clear of criticizing his father's campaign in the past. That changed this week. What do you say? 
Oh yeah, in a big way. And actually Walker, you know, has sporadically spoken um, for his father's campaign. He introduced him at a fundraiser back in December, but things really took a dramatic turn this weekend. It's kind of hard to know where to begin, but basically he accused his dad of being a liar, saying everything has been a lie. All of it's been a lie and you've known it. You have no idea what me and my mom have survived. We could have ended this on day one. I haven't told any stories. I'm just saying don't lie. And so while these allegations, as you outlined, were a blow to the campaign, it's these tweets and these uh, this coming from his son that has from really taken things to the next level. Yeah. I mean, voters in Georgia have been hearing opposition ads for a while now in which Walker's ex-wife accuses him of domestic violence. Has Walker responded to any of this? Right. And that's and that's Christian Walker's son, actually. And and those Mom, ads, yeah. as you say, have uh, sorry, Christian Walker's mother. Excuse yeah. me. And those ads, as you say, have been running a lot. But this is something this specific allegation, this specific report by his ex-wife is something that's been out there for a long time. That interview featuring her is one they did jointly. He wrote about it in a book and he has attributed these episodes to a past mental illness. And so there has been some question about whether that was that's been neutralizing to this attack, that people understand that he struggled with a mental illness. He has told me that he has had treatment and that's long in the past. Um, but there have been other allegations by other women of domestic violence that he has um, that he has denied. And now this um, is just adding to the pile of this drip, drip, drip of stories about Walker's past that, you know, Republicans were worried about for a while. But here we're seeing it come out. Dripping, becoming a flow. Um, let me turn you to the other major controversy this week, which is the allegation that Walker paid for another woman, a former girlfriend, to obtain an abortion. Um, abortion is a key issue in this election in Georgia. It's a key issue in elections all over the country. Walker, as we said, publicly opposes the procedure. How might this play out for his campaign? Again, it's it's early for us. It's a little early for us to tell. I mean, we do know that this has dropped a bomb really in, in Georgia political circles just because, as you said, the saliency of this issue right now and Walker's really staunch position as anti-abortion without exceptions. But the question becomes if, you know, these attacks, which are estimated $50 million worth of negative ads have already been spent on Walker. Does this just to many voters feel like another attack by, you know, the quote liberal media? Does it really change any minds? And that is the question in, you know, conversations with uh, anti-abortion voters and what we've seen from the big national groups, they're sticking by him. But, um, you know, it's the it's those undecided voters. It's in such a tight state, as you know, anyone's mind changing can make a big difference here. That's interesting. I was going to ask you because Republican lawmakers have mostly continued to stand behind Walker. And I was going to ask about Republican voters in Georgia. It sounds like the answer is watch this space. Yeah, I think oh. so. I mean, but that being said, again, we live in a sort of a political world here with lots of strategists and politicians and journalists. The question is, how does this news resonate down to voters? And a uh, lot of the ways that that does is through attack ads. So we'll Emma see Hurt. what those look like. Emma Hurt in Georgia. She's a reporter at Axios. Thanks. Thank you. French writer Annie Arnaud is the newest Nobel laureate in literature. She is a forceful writer of memoir, as described this morning by the Swedish Academy's permanent secretary. Annie Arnaud manifestly believes in the liberating force of writing. Her work is uncompromising and written in plain language, scraped clean. 
Arnaud is widely admired in France and among those who love French feminist literature, but she is little known outside of those circles. NPR's Netta Ulibi tells us more. Annie Arnaud was just beginning to find more of an audience in the United States before her Nobel win. She was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize in 2019 for her novel, The Years. Dans la polyphonie bruyante des repas de fête, avant que surviennent les disputes et la fâcherie à mort. That's Arnaud, reading from The Years at the storied Shakespeare and Company bookshop in Paris when the French version came out in 2008. It's a radical sweep of a novel, a half century of one woman's intimate history, studded with recollections of her own lower class childhood in Normandy. Living in a house with a dirt floor, wearing galoshes, playing with a rag doll washing clothes in wood ash, sewing a little pouch of garlic inside children's nightshirts near the navel to rid them of worms, obeying parents and getting boxed on the ears anyway. Just think if I'd given them lip. That reading was by Arnaud's translator, Alison Strayer. Arnaud has written more than 20 books, neither fiction nor nonfiction, she says, but something that has been called autosociobiography. Arno's passionate subject is her own life, and she has excavated her marriage, her cancer, her parents' deaths, and her illegal abortion that nearly killed her. Arno wrote about it in her first book in 1974, then reconstructed the experience more than 25 years later in a novel called Happening. Happening was made into a movie that last year won the top prize at the Venice Film Festival. I would like a child, but not instead of a life, she says. The novel is only 96 pages long, not unusual for Arno's work. These books are breathtakingly short. That's Dan Simon of Seven Stories Press. He's Arno's U.S. publisher. He describes each of her books as a richly detailed fragment. It is kind of like a puzzle, and each book is a piece of the puzzle, and it's, there's a sense in which all of Annie's books collectively tell one story. Even though Annie Arnaud is a celebrated author in France, whose name has been floated as a Nobel contender for years, her publisher did not wake up this morning convinced that she would win. There's a lot of very visceral sex in her books. She's very unapologetic, unabashedly describes sex. And I said, yeah, the Nobel Prize Committee isn't going to be up for that. When Arno won this morning, the permanent secretary was asked if the Swedish Academy was sending a larger message about reproductive freedom. We concentrate on literature and literary quality, and we don't have any more message to the world. No message, he said, beyond a celebration of what the committee called the courage and clinical acuity with which Annie Arno uncovers the roots and restraints of personal memory. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. 
covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. The week looks like it's ending a lot drier and brighter than it began. Today's sunny skies should give way to partial cloudiness overnight tonight, down around the mid-50s, not too chilly. Tomorrow may be cloudy in the morning, then some sunshine breaking through later on. Should inch all the way to the mid-70s tomorrow, a beautiful day. Sunny, dry, and cooler over the weekend, including on the holiday on Monday. Red Sox plan to raise season ticket prices next year by nearly 2%. General Manager Chaim Bloom also said today he expects the roster to look different next spring. He says the priority will be to re-sign Xander Bogarts. Bloom said he'd also like to re-sign Rafael Devers to a long-term deal. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Federal Reserve has been aggressively increasing interest rates to combat inflation, but it's wreaking havoc on the housing market that was just recently red-hot. Housing prices were going up at an unsustainably fast level, so we probably in the housing market have to go through a correction. More on the rising mortgage rates coming up. It's Thursday, October 6th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden's going to pardon people convicted for simple marijuana possession under federal law or Washington, D.C. statute. Russia says it's claiming parts of Ukraine, but facts on the ground say otherwise. We'll get a reality check. The podcast News explores the things in life that we put off. For the host of the podcast, it was confronting the reality of caring for an aging parent. Also ahead, the increasing number of fans who managed to catch a record-breaking baseball. Nice when you can catch one, but not so nice when it's time to pay taxes on owning a piece of history. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says he is disappointed that OPEC Plus has decided to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day starting next month. The news comes just weeks before the midterm elections, when inflation and gas prices have been a top priority for many voters. Paris Asmahalad has more. The president told reporters that his administration is looking at what alternatives are available. He was asked if Venezuela was one of those options. There's a lot of alternatives we haven't made up our mind yet. He did not specify what those alternatives might be. One of the president's top economic advisors, Brian Deese, said the White House will continue to try to pressure energy companies to narrow the big gap between retail prices at the pump and the wholesale price for refined gasoline that energy companies pay. Deese described the OPEC plus decision as unnecessary and unwarranted. He pointed out that globally, the lack of oil supply has been a challenge given Russia's war in Ukraine. Asma Khalid, NPR News. A judge is putting the brakes on New York's new gun restrictions approved this summer after the Supreme Court struck down the state's limit on carrying concealed weapons. Member station WAMC, Ian Pickus has more. A U.S. district judge says parts of the law approved in a special session in July are unconstitutional. It strengthened background checks for license applicants, requiring them to provide years of social media posts and prove good moral character and established sensitive locations like schools where weapons are not allowed. In response to a challenge from gun rights advocates, the order says weapons can be carried in bars, Times Square, in stadiums, and on public transit. Republican Rob Ort is the Senate Minority Leader. This law will 
if it were to stand, and I believe it will not, would have done nothing to reduce the gun violence you see happening right now. Governor Kathy Hochul says the state will appeal. For NPR News, I'm Ian Pickus in Albany. Swedish authorities say after an investigation, they still don't know who damaged two gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea. But as Terry Schultz reports, they're more convinced than ever it was purposeful sabotage. The Swedish Security Service reports it's finished its crime scene investigation of how the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines got holes in them in late September, causing a massive spill in the sea. In a statement, the service says the probe has, quote, strengthened the suspicions of gross sabotage to the pipelines, resulting from detonations conducted inside the Swedish economic zone. It calls the incident very serious. But the authorities are not yet ready to say who's responsible or whether the perpetrator even will be found. The statement says analysis on the material collected from the scene will show whether anyone can be charged and prosecuted for the crime. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz. Stocks close lower today ahead of key government jobs numbers due out tomorrow. The Dow down 346 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A former cannabis control commissioner of Massachusetts is calling on Governor Baker to pardon all residents who were convicted in state court of possessing small amounts of marijuana. Shalene Title is making the call after President Biden today said that he would pardon thousands of people convicted on marijuana charges in federal court. The president said he's doing so because black Americans were disproportionately charged compared to offenders who are white. Title says she is pleased. The president is also urging governors to pardon state convictions. Cannabis prohibition was never enforced fairly. Now, when cannabis is legal, to have people still face obstacles that uh, happen when you have a record, they shouldn't be facing those things. Title says those with even low-level marijuana convictions on their record have trouble applying for jobs and for housing. She says many more people were convicted on state charges than on the federal level. The state's sports betting program will begin next year at the earliest. Gaming officials said today even with an aggressive timeline, there is too much work to be done to try to launch wagering on the games this year. A proposal the State Gaming Commission is now considering would allow retail betting to begin in January. Online wagering would begin in February. Governor Baker signed a bill legalizing sports betting in Massachusetts in August. A Tufts University report concludes a new state law would give undocumented immigrants new legitimacy in Massachusetts by allowing them to legally acquire a driver's license. The law passed in June, what opponents put question for on the November ballot to stop it. WBR's Stevie Chapman reports the opposition argues the IDs would lead to voter fraud. The report from the Center for State Policy Analysis at Tufts challenges the voter fraud argument. As the study's co-author Evan Horowitz points out, the RMV already issues driver's licenses to people who are not eligible to vote. There are people in this state with green cards. There are people under 18. They can get driver's licenses. They cannot vote. So this is a solved problem in some ways, and I don't think a risk that voters should be overly concerned about. However, Horowitz warns the process will produce a paper trail indicating an applicant's immigration status that could be used to identify and track people. The law will take effect in July if Question 4 passes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's been a beautiful day. We should have a few clouds moving in tonight. Lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow morning, clouds, then brightening skies as the day continues, creeping to the mid-70s tomorrow. Should be sunny and seasonably cool over the weekend, the upper 50s to low 60s, including on the holiday on Monday. This is WBUR 66 degrees now at 5.07.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, committed to knowing the lay of the land, not just the law. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The U.S. housing market today looks very different from the frenzied market of about a year ago. Sales of existing homes dropped for the seventh month in a row as of September. Builders are breaking ground on fewer new homes now than they did a year ago. And would-be buyers like Cheyenne Gordon are feeling a different kind of pain. You see, she and her partner recently looked at a house in Seattle that was around 650 square feet, about the size of an average studio apartment. Was listed for $575,000. It sold for $125,000 over asking price. And that's what it was like in April. Now we can't look at houses that are $575,000. That is because the interest rate for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage in the U.S. has soared to nearly 7%. That's the highest since 2008. And as painful as this is for would-be buyers, sellers, and builders, all of this is kind of by design. You see, the Federal Reserve is trying to bring inflation under control by raising the cost of borrowing. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell explained the policy and the rationale after the Fed issued its fifth rate hike in six months. We've had a time of of a red-hot housing market all over the country where, you know, famously houses were selling at 10 percent above the, the ask before even seeing the house, that kind of thing. Housing prices were going up at an unsustainably fast level. So we probably in the housing market have to go through a correction. You see, last year, home buyers were competing in a red hot seller's market, having to move quickly and aggressively in bidding wars. That isn't the case so much anymore, with high interest rates on mortgage loans and rising home prices slowing down home purchases. Up until recently, I mean, prices were going up 30 to 40 percent in just two years, you know, because of those bidding wars. And I talk about inflation, right? I mean, you know, OK, bananas cost more at the grocery store, but but 30 to 40 percent in two years for a house. I mean, it's crazy. That is NPR correspondent Chris Arnold. I spoke with him earlier about what it means now that mortgage rates have risen in response to the Fed's effort to stamp out inflation. Mortgages anticipate where the Fed is headed with its rate hikes and where inflation looks to be headed. So they moved a lot very fast earlier this year. Now they're all the way up near 7%. They started at 3%. On a $400,000 mortgage, that means $900 more per month on the mortgage payment. I mean, every month, nearly $1,000. And that's for a $400,000 mortgage. A lot of homes cost more than that, obviously. So... The Fed is saying this is necessary medicine for the economy to cool inflation, but it's painful medicine, too. And Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, talked about this. So here's him speaking. We have got to get inflation behind us. I wish there were a a painless way to do that. There isn't. We have to get supply and demand back into alignment. And the way we do that is by slowing the economy. The pain here is people can't afford to buy homes and they really want it to. And, and some of them are stuck. And, and that means fewer homes are selling. 
month after month now. Sales are declining. It's the slowest sales pace in basically seven years. So different from a year ago. So Chris, who are the people right now who are most caught in a bind, would you say? I would say people who decided to buy new construction homes. So they weren't built yet and they signed a thing that said, yes, I signed this contract. I agreed to buy this house in six months or a year, whenever it's built. Well, there were pandemic delays. And then meanwhile, rates went from three to up near seven. And now some of them can't even qualify. We talked to a home buyer in Colorado. She's 32 years old. Her name's Hillary Talarudho, and she's a stay-at-home mom. And this happened to her family. Rates are just too high now and they can't qualify. We were told we'd have to pay off my husband's credit card and have to have $100,000 down to even manage to purchase our townhome, which we were going to buy for $375,000. And $100,000 is way more than 20%. And there's no way we had that. So they had to back out of buying the house and then they lost a $1,000 deposit that they put down. Some home buyers or would-be home buyers have to put down $50,000, sometimes $100,000 deposit, and they could lose that if they walk away. So it's just a very hard situation. Well, we heard Powell earlier talking about housing prices going up at an unsustainable pace. And he was saying the housing market has to go through a correction. What does he mean by that correction? That's a good question. He didn't say exactly what he meant by correction, and it could mean a couple different things. Mm -hmm. And mainstream economists are kind of split on this. Some think prices may still rise, say, 2% nationally year over year, just slow down a lot. Others say, no, prices could be down like 5 or 6% year over year, say say a year from now, maybe more than that in some markets where, where prices really surge. But either way, almost nobody expects a major housing crash like we saw 15 years ago. Right. I guess that's mildly assuring. It doesn't sound like we're headed to a 2008 type implosion of the housing market. But no. what would you say is different this time? Two big things are different. One is we have a housing shortage. There is not enough supply in terms of homes. That was very different last time. We had too many homes. So after the last crash, though, we didn't build enough homes for like a decade. And meanwhile, the millennial generation, they've settled down. They want to buy houses. And homes are selling pretty quickly after they get listed. They're on the market for about 16 days. That, that's just a very fast pace. So those two things together, not enough supply and very strong demand, it's kind of econ 101. It's it's hard for prices to fall too much. And then the other thing is that, that this time around, people can afford their mortgages. And by that, I mean, not people who are stretching right now this week with the very high interest rates, but over the past five years, you know, there's lots and lots of millions of people who bought homes where they bought at a low rate or refinanced, and now they've got a 2.5% mortgage or something, and it's fixed, not adjustable. So for the next 30 years, they're going to have the same mortgage payment. And for years into the future, many, 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 many American homeowners will have an affordable house payment, which will stabilize things. So it's just very different than, than 2008. So what do buyers and sellers need to know right now? Like, What should they consider if they are in the market or thinking about entering the market? Well, you know, unless you're stuck in some kind of bind where you're going to lose 50 grand if you don't buy the house. You know, for, for buyers, you don't want to buy into a frenzy. And in, in some ways, look, the pressure's off. It's not a great time to buy a house. Prices are still very high. Interest rates are very high. So just do your research on different neighborhoods and find a good first-time homebuyer program. For sellers, prices are still very strong out there, but just don't price the house like 
the height of the frenzy three or four months ago, price at a price that's going to sell today. That is NPR's Chris Arnold. Thank you so much, Chris. Absolutely. Thanks, Elsa. President Biden announced today he is pardoning thousands of people convicted of marijuana possession under federal law. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. Democratic activists have long sought changes to marijuana laws. Biden himself pledged to do something about it while campaigning for president. NPR's Asma Khalid has been tracking this and is with us now. Hey there, Asma. Hi there. Okay, give us some detail. What exactly did the president announce this afternoon? The president announced executive action to erase prior convictions for people convicted of simple marijuana possession under either federal or D.C. statute, so federal or D.C. statute. And in a video that the White House disseminated, the president spoke about what this could mean. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. My pardon will remove this burden on them. So to give you a sense of how many people that means, um, more than 6,500 people were convicted of simple possession between 1992 and 2021 under federal law. And then this also will apply to thousands more under the D.C. Code. But many marijuana convictions occur at the state level. And and so the president is also urging governors to take similar steps in their states. So what does this mean? Does this mean Biden is supporting the decriminalization of marijuana? No, he did not go that far, Mary Louise. And and it is worth pointing out that the president did say in his comments today that even as federal and state regulations around marijuana change, we still need, quote, important limitations on trafficking, marketing, and underage sales of marijuana. But what he did do today is ask the Health and Human Services Secretary and the Attorney General to review how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. It's currently classified in the same category as heroin and LSD. Uh, more serious than fentanyl, which the president himself says makes no sense. Huh. Okay. What has the reaction to this move been? So, you know, Mary Lou, one of the main criticisms of marijuana laws for years has been that there is a disproportionate impact on black and brown people. Uh, I've heard this issue framed as a racial justice issue in many previous campaigns on the Democratic side. And the president himself acknowledged the racial impact today. Uh, we did see swift praise from groups like the NAACP and Al Sharpton's National Action Network. Um, but at the same time, you know, Republicans have been eager to run as the party in this election cycle that is tough on crime and paint Democrats as being soft on crime. And this could play into that broader narrative. Uh, For example, Senator Tom Cotton was quick to call this, quote, blanket pardons for drug offenders in, quote, the midst of a crime wave. Well, speaking of politics, I got to ask about timing. You got to wonder about the timing of everything with the midterms four weeks away. Is that a coincidence? You know, I was on a call earlier today uh, in which senior administration officials held uh, with with reporters about this announcement, and they were certainly asked about the timing. Why now? Why, uh, given the fact that this could have happened potentially earlier with executive action, And, you know, administration officials insist these moves are about fulfilling a campaign commitment that Biden made. Of course, as you say, there is always politics at play here. This announcement was put out in a video made for sharing on social media. And this is important because our latest NPR Marist poll released this morning found that young and black voters were the least likely to vote this November. NPR's Asma Holland. Thanks, Asma. My pleasure. Happy to do it.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. What's really happening on the battlefields of Ukraine coming up on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks fell for a second day today. The Dow lost the most ground, 1.15%, or 347 points. It closed to 29,927. S&P gave up 1% to finish the day at 3745. The Nasdaq lost 0.68% to end the day at 11,073. Details coming up on Marketplace and at 6.30, it's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Walmart is buying a company in Andover that's considered a leader in grocery automation. Walmart wants to use Alert Innovation's robotic system that can fulfill a customer's grocery order automatically from a warehouse or store shelves. The Andover company has been working with the retail giant for six years to customize its technology. In announcing the purchase today, a Walmart spokesman told the Boston Business Journal that not all Alert Innovation employees will be needed once the acquisition is complete. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. A few clouds moving in overnight tonight, temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow morning, clouds and brightening skies as the day continues, creeping to the mid-70s tomorrow. In the Boston area, 66 degrees now. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds, working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at FJC.org. And from UMA, a cloud based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. We all procrastinate from little things like getting an oil change to big things like planning for the future for ourselves, for our families. And recently, the future caught up with reporter Megan Tan. She was confronted with one of the harsh realities of getting older, an ailing parent in need of full-time care. Tan chronicled that experience for her podcast, Snooze. Hey, Dad. How are you? Oh, struggling today. For my dad, these past few years have been tough. He retired, got a divorce, started living alone. Even though he lives in Ohio and I live in Los Angeles, I think about him every day. When he doesn't answer the phone, I assume he's in a mood or he's too tired. Hey, it's me. I just wanted to call and say hi, see how you're doing. Uh, After leaving three voice messages, he finally calls me back. He's calling me from the floor. He had fallen and had been on the floor for days. I immediately grab another phone and call Crystal, my older sister. She's already in the car, on her way over. I don't hang up. I don't know what state he's in, if he's hit his head, broken a hip, had a heart attack or a stroke. What I do know is 
I wish I wasn't so far away. For most of my life, I've avoided taking on any kind of family responsibility. I'm the youngest. My sister Crystal is 10 years older. She helps my dad file his taxes and helped our parents sell our childhood home. Me? I study abroad in faraway lands and follow dream jobs all over the country. I'm always too busy to come home. But when my dad falls, is rushed to the hospital and then to a rehabilitation center, I decide to buy a one-way plane ticket. I'm walking into the rehabilitation center and I see my father. He has a walker, he's thin, and he has hair on his face that I've never seen before. When I walk up to him, I say, hi, dad, and immediately give him a hug and kiss. But he doesn't react. He doesn't smile. The next day, my father's on a no kick. Let's have breakfast. No. Let's take a walk. No. Put on clean clothes. No, 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 no. Want to try to go to the bathroom? No. Come on, let me help you stand up. I'm grabbing his hands and he's digging in his heels. After spending eight hours with him, I walk out of the hospital and I wonder if every day is going to be a battle. I don't know why today was such a hard day. Maybe because I'm tired. You really have to tell yourself that you're doing okay. Because no one is here to tell you that. The next day, I bring a razor. When I pull it out of the bag, his face lights up. It's the first joyful expression I've seen from him since I got to Ohio. All right, stay, stay. We just get this is it, this is it. Are you gonna smile? <laughs> Good. Great job. Great face. I've never shaved my father's face before. It's a specific kind of care. You have to be gentle, close, and there has to be trust. I realize in that moment that our roles are reversing. That night, I tell him. He'll never be alone in the way he was before. Promise. All right, Daddy, you listening? Today is what, February 20th? February 23rd. February 26th, 2022. All right, what's the guidance? When I arrived to my hometown with a one-way ticket, I thought I'd be here for a few weeks, a month at most. I was expecting my father to bounce back so I could return to my life and he to his. But then one of his doctors tells me and my sister that he can't live alone anymore and suggests he move in with one of us. Does he even want to do that? After dinner one night, my sister and I bring it up. Two big questions. Stay in Ohio or move to California? It's like choose your own adventure. Based on my uh, health. Basis, I don't think I can do either one of them. That's not a part of the... That's not an option, Dad. Yeah. And, when you, and if you come to California, you would be staying with me. You say, me and Megan, new roommate situation. 
My dad has lived in Ohio for the past 54 years, ever since he left Singapore. And now, at 75, we're asking him to put his whole life in storage and hop on a plane with me, his 31-year-old daughter, and trust me to take care of him. I'm scared, too. I'd be giving up a part of my life as well. After sitting in silence, I say... If I said, you have to move to California and live with me, how would you feel about that? I feel great. Oh, oh, great. Okay. okay. Great. Let's choose that one. You said you'll feel great? People keep asking me, are you ready to take on this responsibility? And do you know what you're getting yourself into? Dad, what's our deal? To have hope. Can you have hope? We're going to live together. Oh. Step by step. I need you to trust me, remember? The answer is, he's my father. And I'm his daughter. And no one is going to love him as much as Crystal and I do. No one is going to make sure he eats his favorite foods, writes down his goals, and starts to envision himself walking again. But we will. I will. Before we jump on a plane to California, I tell him, You're going to be okay, Dad. Okay. Tomorrow's going to be great. And I'll be with you the whole time. Welcome back to travel with American Airlines. Okay. We're glad you're here. Your safety is important to us. Please pause for a moment to give your attention to the flight attendant. Reporter Megan Tan and her father currently live together in Los Angeles. She hosts the podcast Snooze. You can hear the full version of this story anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The word from the New England Patriots. Backup quarterback Brian Hoyer is out for at least the next four weeks. The team placed him on injured reserve today. Hoyer had a concussion Sunday against the Packers. Today's decision means if Mac Jones is not able to play against Detroit this Sunday because of his ankle injury, rookie third stringer Bailey Zappi could get his first start. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. See the Northern Lights in Kendall Square at Borealis, the spectacular open-air light show, this Thursday through Sunday from 8 p.m. Free, cambridgesciencefestival.org. If corporations start to believe that consumer demand is going to be persistently slower because of all of these rate increases that the Fed has been making, they might actually start to change their behavior, eat into those big profits, and charge lower prices. And that would help inflation to moderate and could potentially make it easier for us to achieve that sort of mythical soft landing. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
Facing severe drought, record heat waves, and major wildfires, California Governor Gavin Newsom joined other Western leaders today, signing an agreement to tackle the climate crisis and transition to clean energy. The goal is to build a low-carbon economy of the future in major West Coast cities. Newsom signed the agreement with the governors of Oregon, Washington State, and British Columbia as part of the Pacific Coast Collaborative. The realities that present themselves present opportunities uh, that we recognize we have to reconcile. And, and we also recognize with humility we don't have all the answers. And so we seek to share best practices. We seek to compete. <laughs> I think you heard that uh, from uh, jurisdiction to jurisdiction with one another. But in an enlightened sense, that competition has brought us to where we are today with this collaborative. It's the latest effort by Newsom and other Democratic leaders to raise the profile of climate change and take steps to increase renewable energy and widen efforts to thin fire-prone forests. Ukrainian troops continue their counteroffensive in the country's south and east despite Moscow's illegal annexation of the areas. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf reports from the recently liberated town of Liman. Liman was part of the Russian Federation, according to Russian President Vladimir Putin at least, for one day before Ukrainian forces managed to take it back. But that's news to many people living here. 33-year-old Mikhail, who didn't give his last name out of safety concerns, laughs in disbelief when asked if he knew that Putin considers him a Russian citizen. No, I haven't heard that. You didn't hear that? He says no, no. He hadn't heard about the so-called referendums or seen any voting. But despite being glad Ukraine has taken back his town, Mikhail says what's really needed is electricity. The town has been without it for seven months. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Legalized sports betting in Massachusetts is on hold until early next year at the soonest. Gaming regulators are still trying to agree on when the wagering should launch. WBUR's Rob Lane reports. Members of the State Gaming Commission today rolled out a potential timeline for a sports betting launch. Under the initial framework, retailer in-person betting at sportsbooks would start in January. Online or app-based wagering could begin in February, the month of the Super Bowl. Commission Executive Director Karen Wells says hopes for an earlier launch would be unrealistic. This is the most aggressive that we've got at least a shot of making. At least one member of the commission wants that aggressiveness to be scaled back. Commissioner Nikisha Skinner says she's worried the proposed timeline is too compressed for regulators to do thorough work. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling on top state officials to testify about safety and reliability issues on the MBTA. She chairs the Senate's Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee's Subcommittee on Economic Policy. It'll hold a hearing next week in Boston on the issue. Warren is asking T. General Manager Steve Poftak and the Department of Public Utilities Chair Matthew Nelson to field questions. An MBTA spokesperson says the Transit Authority will respond soon to the senator's request. The Department of Public Utilities says Nelson will indeed testify. Boston Symphony Orchestra will be packing its bags for the first time in a while. It's announced a four-city concert tour of Japan in November. It is the first international tour for the symphony since 2018. Orchestra president and CEO Gail Samuel said she is thrilled the group can travel once again. I always say that an orchestra um, just comes back from a tour um, just artistically more energized uh, than they left. I think there's something about different audiences and bringing that then home back to Boston is really exciting. COVID surges forced the symphony to cancel two planned tours. 
once in 2020 and again earlier this year. Salem kicks off a month-long celebration of Halloween this evening. The annual Haunted Happenings Parade starts at 6.30 tonight. The costume procession will shut down much of the city's downtown to vehicle traffic. Officials say visitors should plan to park in a satellite lot or take public transit. It's 5.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt.com. With a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at prompt.com. After beautiful fall day, we should have some clouds around tonight. Lows about 57. Tomorrow should reach all the way to the mid-70s. Partly sunny skies tomorrow. Light winds too. For the weekend, sunny skies Saturday, Sunday, and likely the holiday Monday too with highs on either side of 60. 66 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. To the growing gap now between what Russia says is happening in Ukraine and reality on the ground. Russia insists it has annexed parts of Ukraine. It says it's pouring in hundreds of thousands more troops. But Ukrainian troops keep pushing a counteroffensive in the country's south and east, and they keep upending the Kremlin's plans. In southern Ukraine is where we find NPR's Jason Bobian, and I want to let you listen in to how his reporting compares with what our Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman is hearing here in Washington. Hi, you two. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Jason, you get to start because you're actually there. Tell me exactly where you are, what you're seeing. Yeah, so I'm in the port city of Odessa. It's on the south coast, down on the Black Sea. This is very close to the southern offensive that's happening in the Kherson region. And Ukrainian troops have really made some significant progress here in the south over the last week. They've been saying for months that they're going to launch a counteroffensive here. And this week, it really started to get going. Ukrainian officials say they've taken about 400 square kilometers of territory back from Russian forces over the last few days even. And and this is all on the west bank of the Dnipro River. The Ukrainians are pushing south from this northern line down towards the city of Kherson. And they're gearing up for far more resistance when they try to actually take that larger city. Mainly, they're kind of going through farmland at the moment. And they're finding that these Russian lines are collapsing quite quickly. Uh, One crucial thing, military officials are telling me that they're acquiring more military equipment, even some tanks, as the Russians have been abandoning these positions and retreating. And Ukrainian officials really feel like they've got the momentum in this fight right now. So Russian weapons are actually now supplying the Ukrainian troops who are fighting back against them. Um, There are also weapons coming from the U.S., of course. And Tom, another package on that front was announced just this week. What is it? Well, still another package, Mary Louise. Uh, This one includes more than two dozen howitzers, tens of thousands of artillery rounds, a couple of hundred armored vehicles. Now, the big thing in this package is long-range rocket artillery called HIMARS, which has been very effective, as we've all heard. The U.S. already provided 16 of these. A senior Pentagon official, Laura Cooper, told reporters more are coming in just a few weeks. Let's listen. 
So having these additional four HIMARS is going to enable uh, the Ukrainians and, and the other capabilities as well to have flexibility in how they employ these capabilities with their forces as they look for additional opportunities to seize the strategic advantage. Meaning they have flexibility to send this key equipment to the fronts in the east or the south where Jason is. Now, the HIMARS artillery rounds, Mary Louise, are extremely accurate, can travel about 50 miles. Ukrainians and some in Congress want the rounds that can travel, get this, nearly 200 miles. Hmm. We've been talking about this a lot. But the White House is still reluctant because they fear that this would further provoke Russia. Uh, the Ukrainians really would like to get those longer range ones in part because even from the positions that they control now, like near where I am here in Odessa, they would then be able to hit some of these Russian bases in Crimea. And they think that would really help disrupt some of the Russian supply lines, make things more difficult for them. And I've been asking people here whether they think these weapons are going to get here soon because time is very much of the essence from the Ukrainian perspective. And uh, I, one spokesperson woman for the Southern Command, she told me today that she expects that these will actually be arriving quite quickly. That's what they've seen in the past, and they expect that with this allocation as well. Although aren't the Russian forces also getting some new military capabilities? I keep seeing all these reports about drones from Iran. Yes. And even just this afternoon, there were some drone strikes right around here, around Odessa, and officials say that they also managed to shoot down a couple that were trying to come in. Tehran continues to insist that they are not supplying drones to Moscow. But military officials here say they've seen a sharp uptick in these drone attacks over the last couple of weeks. And they say they've shot several of them down, and they go and they look at what's in this wreckage, and, and it's clearly from Iranian-made drones. And the thinking here is that this is a sign that Russia is running low on its more expensive missiles. While the drones are harder to detect and slower than the missile, they are less expensive. That Southern Command spokeswoman that I was talking to earlier, she said that according to their tally, Ukraine has shot down 35 of these drones here just in this region alone, while 24 of them have made it through and hit their targets. Meanwhile, Tom Bowman, what are you hearing when you ask officials at the Pentagon, officials elsewhere in, in Washington, when you ask about this sense that Ukraine has the momentum, that, that Ukraine is succeeding on the battlefield? Right. Well, you know, U.S. officials are surprised and, you know, really positive about the uh, Ukrainian move so far, particularly in the east, pushing forward and grabbing the city of Leman and they expect them to move farther east. And again, it really is amazing that they've been able to do this so far. But the concern is they, they, they want to make sure that the Ukrainians can hold the territory they've grabbed and not overrun their supply lines. That's a big concern. But again, they're moving now into the northern Donbass area, the Luhansk area, which has been held by the Russians for quite some time. And again, the Americans are hopeful that they'll keep pushing ahead. It really is amazing. Can I steer us back, um, Jason, to the battle to control Kherson? You, you have yep. mentioned that a couple times, and I just want to focus on why this is seen as so key. Well, certainly, it, it's very important to Moscow, in part because the city of Kherson is the only regional capital that they actually managed to grab and still hold during this entire eight months of war so far. So it's very crucial to them, this would be a major loss if, if they lost Kherson. But Kherson is also much more difficult to conduct offensive 
maneuvers in than Kharkiv, where there was the, in the northeast, where that other counteroffensive happened by the Ukrainians. Again, this woman I was talking to from the Southern Command today, she was basically downplaying expectation that there's going to be a rapid sweep through Kherson. Kherson's also the region as well as the city through the Kherson region like there was in Kharkiv. She says the Russians are well dug in here. The terrain is very flat and advancing troops are very exposed as they're trying to move across it. And she adds that the winter is going to make things even more difficult for Ukrainian troops as they try to move into some of these positions that are well defended by the Russians. And here's another challenge with Kherson area. You know, the Ukrainians need to use pontoon bridges to cross this river down there, and the Russians are targeting the bridging equipment. U.S. officials are hopeful Ukrainian forces can push the Russians out of Kherson before year's end into the far side of the larger Dnipro River. Then that river would be a natural barrier, preventing the Russians from coming back. And here's the big thing about that. If that does happen, that will allow Ukrainian forces, I'm told, to move more of their troops to that eastern Don boss fight. Yeah. Hey, Tom, one last quick thing before I let you go. Russia says they are sending 300,000 additional troops. That's a lot. Won't that make a difference? Well, here's the thing. You know, Russia is still trying to raise those conscript forces. We're not seeing many yet. And Pentagon officials doubt they can even reach that number. And even if they do, Mary Louise, those troops will be poorly trained and equipped. And they're going to show up with their comrades who are also have very low morale so they don't think it's really, even if they get that number, it's not going to be very effective. Uh, is NPR's Tom Bowman reporting on the Pentagon and Jason Bobian reporting from Odessa, Ukraine. Thanks so much to you both for sharing a little bit of your reporter's notebooks. You're welcome. Oh, thank you, Mary Louise. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It costs about 25 bucks to buy an official Major League Baseball. That is, until a superstar hitter like New York Yankee Aaron Judge socks it into the stands. That's Judge this week on the Yes Network, breaking the American League single-season home run record. He's done it! He has done it! 62! In an instant, that $25 ball could be worth millions, and the Internal Revenue Service might be interested in a cut. Michael Bologna wrote about that for Bloomberg, and he joins me now. Hi there. Hi. Can you just explain to us a little bit about how this works? What, what does the IRS say about this kind of situation? Well, first, I, I should say that the IRS has said very little about this situation. And what the IRS has said uh, about it is about as clear and as precise as a Yogi Berra aphorism. Uh, if you were to take the Internal Revenue Code quite literally, the finding of a million-dollar baseball, for argument's sake, uh, would be treated under what's known as the treasure trove regulation. Any windfall that a taxpayer uh, comes across uh, immediately becomes um, recognized as ordinary income. And so you would have to uh, realize that million-dollar baseball is as uh, a, a million dollars in income, and then uh, you'd probably be at the 37% rate, uh, top marginal rate. And by my estimation, you'd, you'd need to pay the government $332,000 uh, approximately. 
Wait, just to make sure I understand you clearly here, you're saying if I'm just in the stands, I reach up and somehow I manage to catch this ball, I could be on the hook for $332,000? Right, right. Uh, on the other hand, you still have a, uh, a baseball worth a million dollars. Wow. Okay, so Michael, could someone simply avoid all of this by just picking up that ball and tossing it right back to the team? Yeah, and that is exactly the question that the IRS tried to answer in 1998. So if everyone remembers, there was sort of this home run derby going on at that point between um, Sammy Sosa and um, Mark McGuire. And um, and this question came up and an Internal Revenue Service uh, spokesperson uh, was interviewed on it and said that that person, uh, assuming that they handed the ball back to uh, McGuire, uh, or, or the ball club, would immediately be hit with a gift tax. So this turned into quite a controversy. There were even members of Congress complaining about this. The IRS was looking pretty bad in this scenario. They decided to draft this press release that um, came to the conclusion that um, uh, using an analogy of uh, principles of tax law that apply when someone immediately declines a prize or returns an unsolicited piece of merchandise, uh, in those circumstances, uh, there would be no gift tax uh, for, the, for the taxpayer. So I know you talked to some experts about all of this, and did any of them offer any tax advice to people catching these million-dollar baseballs? I think at a very literal level, you'd have to use the treasure trove regulation that I discussed before. Uh, but there are a lot of tax professionals who believe that that is really the wrong answer and that you should only be taxed when the ball is is sold. That maybe seems like a fairer treatment. You know, you you only have income when you sell the ball. Michael Bologna is a senior correspondent with Bloomberg Tax. Thank you for being here. Thank you. This is NPR News. Making sense of the world through cycling. That story coming up on WBUR. Coming to City Space Wednesday, October 12th, New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman talks about her new book about Donald Trump with here and now co-host Scott Tong. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Globe, presenting Boston's all-documentary film festival in theaters and online October 12th through 16th. The 8th Annual Globe Docs Film Festival features screenings and conversation with Boston Globe journalists and filmmakers. Tickets available at globe.com filmfest. Should be able to see the sunset tonight. Only a few clouds are on for a change, but there may be more clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, clouds may linger in the morning, but we should have some sunshine for the majority of the day. Highs reaching the mid-70s. For the weekend, bright skies, cooler temperatures in the upper 50s to low 60s. The sunset tonight should be at 6.16 p.m. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549. WBUR supporters include Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Cartoonist Kate Beaton goes from Hark of Vagrant to a reflection on one of her first jobs and the tug between a love of home and the need to get away to survive. This push and pull defines us. It's all over our music, our literature, our art, and our understanding of our place in the world. 
Kate Beaton's new graphic novel is called Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The city of Rochester, New York, has settled with the estate of Daniel Prude. His death, following his arrest by police in March of 2020, touched off demonstrations in that city and nationwide. WXXI News reporter Gino Finelli in Rochester reports. And just to note, this story describes graphic details of Prude's death. Daniel Prude was wandering the streets on the west side of the city, naked and acting erratically. It was a frigid morning. Prude had just shattered a window of a local business when police encountered him. An enduring image of his arrest was that of Prude, who was 41 years old, on his knees, his hands cuffed behind his back, and a mess spit bag over his head. Police held him in a three-pronged restraint known as segmenting. During the restraint, Prude vomited and lost consciousness. He died a week later at a local hospital. Prude's death did not become known to the public until about six months later, when lawyers representing his family released police body-worn camera footage of his arrest. The video sparked finger-pointing between officials at City Hall over who knew what when and led to the resignations of the entirety of the police department's top brass, including the chief, Laurent Singletary. After two years of litigation, the city agreed to pay Prude's five children $12 million. The settlement stipulates that the city was not liable for Prude's death. Stephen Shores was one of three lawyers representing Prude's children. I think it's a just outcome. I think it's a, a recognition by the administration um, that has taken over the city that this tragedy was avoidable um, and that this was something that shouldn't have happened and it's something that should never happen again. An independent investigation commissioned by the Rochester City Council determined that several city officials suppressed information regarding Prude's death, including former Mayor Lovely Warren. Rochester's current mayor, Malik Evans, said settling the case gives the city a chance to move forward. Um, this has been going on for two years. Obviously, I've been in office in nine months. One of the things we wanted to do is try to bring this chapter to a close, and I believe, if you saw my statement today, I believe that this does that. None of the officers involved in the arrest were ever charged. A report issued by New York Attorney General Letitia James stated Prude died from excited delirium caused by the use of the drug PCP. Excited delirium is a controversial medical diagnosis often pointed to when people die in police custody. The settlement does not make any recommendations on changes to the police department's policies or procedures. For NPR News, I'm Gino Finale in Rochester, New York. For a little bit of joy these days, NPR is taking some time to celebrate the things we are really into, the stuff that keeps us going beyond the news. For NPR's Bill Chapel, that means hopping on his bike and pedaling out into the world. I'm a reporter for NPR, so it's my job to make sense of things. That's not always easy, but when I sat down to think about this essay and why I love cycling, I ran into another challenge. I seem to make the most and the least sense when I'm riding my bike. On a bike, my brain disengages from stress. Life settles down to simple rhythms. My feet are spinning, my wheels are spinning, but my mind is calm. Throw in a good podcast or music and I'll be gone for hours. On a nice long ride, you start finding new layers of yourself, new bursts of energy. 
That's when I feel like my body's actually incinerating little stresses I've accumulated. And when we published this essay on NPR's website, it turned out I wasn't alone. People from around the country got in touch to say what cycling means to them. People like Gabby Agnes and Ben Justic. It is just pure magic how any problem seems to evaporate at the beginning. And when you finish your ride, you have the right answers or the courage to face it. For me, cycling is more than just great exercise. It functions as a form of therapy. And for me, riding a bike is kind of necessary. I've had knee problems since I was a little kid. In fact, I'm missing a fairly important ligament in my left knee. A surgeon took it out around my first birthday, along with a tumor that had grown under my kneecap. That meant I learned to walk in a full leg cast. One leg grew a little shorter than the other, and I was self-conscious about the special shoes I had to wear. But on a bike, I was just like anyone else. And my doctor told little kid me over and over that riding a bike would build up muscles and hold my knee together. Mostly, it's been fine. I've been able to do everything I wanted, and even some stuff my doctor didn't want me to. Basketball, tennis, skiing. Sometimes a little chorus of what-ifs would start up in the back of my mind. What if I got really hurt and just kind of wrecked myself? I'm not sure if this is a feature or a bug, but I learned to basically turn the volume down on that noise to block out what could go wrong. It's a good strategy for life. Focus on what you want to happen, not what you don't. But it's also something I think about when I wonder, why do I do the things I do? I admit to doing some kooky stuff on my bike. Passing a Camaro in the left lane on a steep hill in the dark, riding through deep snow on a 20-mile hill trail, sprinting downhill so I can coast across a wide creek, legs straight out, hoping I have enough speed to carry me across the water. In a way, it seems right that ridiculous things should happen on a bike. It's one of the most impossible of human conveyances. Everything else we use to get around pretty much makes sense. But for years, scientists actually had no idea how or why a bicycle really works on a fundamental level. My love for cycling started in high school, when I used money from a summer job to buy a Nishiki Century. I spent hours reading cycling gurus like Sheldon Brown and Grant Peterson. When I watched the Tour de France, I became a fan of Jens Voigt, the German rider who's famous for making himself ride incredibly hard, and if his legs complained, he yelled at them. Shut up, legs. My legs are doing okay. I like that riding a bike keeps me healthy, but I love that it gives me a place to depressurize. Leaning over my handlebars, I've come to terms with setbacks and made plans for the future. It's where I realized I should propose to my wife. It's where I mourned my mother after she died of ALS. And now, it's where I think about my own kids. And like I said, I'm not alone. When we asked other cyclists to talk about what it means to them, here's what Lee Kramerchik said. When I first read your essay, I was two days off of tearing my ACL, which happened on a mountain bike, doing something that could be called crazy, but uh, really it was just this fluke accident that made no sense to me. The physics of bicycles may still be a mystery, but lots of things in life don't make sense. And they don't always have to. You've just got to keep moving. That is NPR's Bill Chapel on his love of cycling. The 
transition away from fossil fuels will require mining for cobalt. It's a rare earth metal needed for the batteries that power electric vehicles or store energy from solar or wind generation. In Idaho, a cobalt mine that has been defunct for decades is getting a reboot and it's opening tomorrow. That story on tomorrow's program. You can listen on your radio or you can ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. The week looks like it's going to end a lot drier and brighter than it began. Today's sunny skies should give way to partial cloudiness overnight tonight down in the mid-50s, not too chilly. For tomorrow, cloudy in the morning, then sunshine later on, inching all the way to the mid-70s. Sunny, dry, and cooler over the weekend, including for the holiday on Monday. Temperatures right about 60. 64 degrees now in Boston at 559. I'm health care reporter Martha Biebinger. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The FDA is developing a new system to label food packages to help identify which foods deserve to be called healthy. Advocates say it could benefit an indecisive shopper. Most consumers will make decisions in you know, a few seconds on whether they're going to purchase a product or not. It's Thursday, October 6th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, how to encourage Americans to eat healthier without creating stigma about body size and weight. The Biden administration is increasing its efforts to fight scams that take advantage of borrowers who apply for its expensive student loan forgiveness program. And the CEO of Fox News warned colleagues not to, quote, give the crazies an inch after election night in 2020. Dominion Voting Systems revealed this in its $1.6 billion defamation suit against the network. These stories and the forecast coming up at 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden toured an IBM plant in Poughkeepsie, New York today, touting Chips and Science Act. Member station WAMC, Lucas Willard reports. IBM says it will directly benefit from the legislation passed earlier this year, which invests billions of dollars in semiconductor manufacturing and research and development. IBM says it will put $20 billion into New York's Hudson Valley region over the next decade. Highlighting other recent private investments in the high-tech industry, President Biden said the U.S. is at an inflection point when it comes to competing with other countries like China. The changes are going to take place in the next 10 are going to fundamentally alter the way in which we look at the world and our place in the world. And that's not hyperbole. It's real. 
Biden's victory lap for the CHIPS Act comes a month ahead of the key congressional midterms. For NPR News, I'm Lucas Willard in Poughkeepsie. Jurors in the seditious conspiracy trial involving Stuart Rhodes are hearing testimony from former members of the Oath Keepers group. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports witnesses say they were worried about the rhetoric before the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Michael Adams says he was eager to join the far-right group in the summer of 2020 as protests over police killings swept the nation. But Adams says he quit the Oath Keepers after letters Stuart Rhodes wrote to former President Donald Trump that year. Quote, I didn't want to be associated with that, Adams says. Another Oath Keeper recorded a virtual call in the winter of 2020 and tried to alert the FBI. Rhodes and four other members of the group are on trial for trying to overturn the election by using force. They argue they want to provide security for VIPs during the January 6th rally, and prosecutors are mischaracterizing their actions. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Most of the thousands of nursing home residents in Florida evacuated for Hurricane Ian have returned to their facilities. But Stephanie Colombini with member station WUSF reports some are still displaced. Nine nursing homes in southwest Florida, the Orlando area, and Daytona Beach are still not operational after Hurricane Ian caused flooding and other damage to their buildings. Kristen Knapp advocates for nursing homes with the Florida Healthcare Association. She says residents are staying in nearby skilled nursing facilities where staff are working to make them feel comfortable. For nursing home residents, many of them have very complex medical needs. They have Alzheimer's or dementia. So there's always a concern about transfer trauma when you talk about evacuations. State health and emergency management officials have to inspect each nursing home before they can reopen. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Colombini in Tampa. His plans aren't entirely clear, but entrepreneur Elon Musk, who says his on-again, off-again deal to buy social media company Twitter, is now back on again. A Delaware court has now granted his request to halt an upcoming trial. Two sides were due in court in later this month. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Legislators on Beacon Hill today asked the department that oversees the MBTA to explain why it should stay in that role. Some lawmakers say the Department of Public Utilities is not fit for the job. A federal report cited poor oversight as one reason for safety problems at the T. WBUR Simone Rios reports on today's hearing by the Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy. Committee co-chair State Senator Mike Barrett says lawmakers are ready to look at ways to remove T oversight from the DPU. One possibility is creating another agency altogether that's independent of the governor. Barrett put DPU chair Matt Nelson on the spot. So we should be quiet and just let the status quo continue? Well, if, if the status quo continues, that's a problem. And that's not acceptable. I, and I don't think I've delivered that message at all today. What I am saying, though, is... We are in the middle of expanding the division and trying to invest in the people. Nelson says the DPU is having an incredibly difficult time finding qualified applicants for transit safety jobs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. For the first time in more than three months, gasoline prices in Massachusetts have gone up. AAA says a gallon of gas in the state costs $3.51 on average. That's up two cents from yesterday. A new regional food pantry is now open in Lynn. It'll be able to serve 250 families a day. At today's ribbon-cutting ceremony, Catholic Charities Boston Chief Operating Officer Kelly Tuthill said people will be able to get more than food at the organization's new facility. 
When an individual or family comes here for food, they'll also be referred to services such as rental assistance, SNAP benefits, child care, and English classes. Catholic Charities also operates food pantries in Dorchester, Brockton, Lowell, and South Boston. Massachusetts is getting $145 million through the American Rescue Plan to expand broadband access. The grant is expected to connect 16,000 households and businesses that still don't have access to high-speed Internet. That's about a quarter of the number that don't have such access. Senator Ed Markey says to be offline in our digital world is to be excluded from opportunity and disconnected from the community. Even with the recent rains, all of Massachusetts is still considered to be abnormally dry. Today's weekly report from the U.S. Drought Monitor shows Cape Ann and North Shore remain in an extreme drought. Boston and Cape Cod are among parts of the state that are still classified as being in severe drought. In the forecast, a calm and dry night tonight. Temperatures about 57. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Highs pushing the mid-70s. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. What makes a food healthy? It is a complex question, but the Food and Drug Administration aims to help answer it with a new food package labeling system. The last time the agency defined healthy was back in 1994. That was at the height of the fat-free diet boom. NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us now to talk about how the idea of healthy has changed. Hi there. Hey, Juana. Good to be here. So, Allison, tell us about these proposed changes. Well, there's really two things happening here. The FDA is updating its working definition of healthy as it pertains to food labels, and they're developing a new healthy icon or symbol for food packages. The aim really is to have packaging reflect the current nutrition science, which has really evolved a lot over the last 25 years. So, you know, things that passed as healthy or qualified for a healthy claim back in 1994, like white bread or highly sweetened yogurt or sugary cereals, simply because they were low in fat would no longer be able to have a healthy claim on the packaging and i'd say the fda's guidance on this is you know overdue the fat-free boom is long gone it's widely recognized that some fats are good for us we need them so we could a new healthy icon on food such as avocados nuts seeds fatty fish like salmon olive oil you know health conscious people may be listening to this and saying it's about time okay so why is this happening now You know, the change comes at a time when the Biden administration has prioritized a goal of improving Americans' diets. And this is given that diet-related diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, heart disease, are top cause of death. Uh, This was a big focus at last week's White House Food Conference, and the labeling initiative is really part of the administration's new strategy announced at the conference. I'd say it's also a moment when culturally it's become a bit trickier to talk about food and diet given the pushback on diet culture on body shaming and the real guilt and shame people can feel linked to body image yeah and those are all really important concerns but all of this just strikes me, Allison, as incredibly complicated. Yeah, you know, a lot of healthcare providers and public health experts say it's really important at this time to both recognize and validate these concerns people have, while at the same time helping people understand that our diets, what we eat, does play a significant role of preventing or promoting chronic disease. So given how tricky and fraught this all can be, how is the Food and Drug Administration approaching this? 
Well, the FDA is really a regulatory agency, and their approach is to kind of go by the science and to listen to, as they like to say, all their stakeholders, which does include the food industry, the companies that market the foods we eat. Where the agency has landed on this is that a healthy icon could help empower people with helpful information. I spoke to Susan Main. She's the director of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at the FDA. Most consumers will make decisions in a few seconds on whether they're going to purchase a product or not. So having something like healthy that can be on the front of the pack can help consumers make those quick decisions. So is there a consensus among nutrition and health experts that this is going to help? I think there are mixed opinions. On the plus side, if someone is choosing between two packaged foods and one has less salt, less sugar, and more healthy fats, qualifies for a healthy icon, that could be helpful. But there are limits to green lighting foods on packaging. I mean, many of the healthiest foods don't come in packages. At a time we're told to eat more whole foods, more fruits and vegetables, there's criticism that a healthy icon kind of misses the mark. I spoke to Marion Nessel. She's nutrition professor emerita at New York University. I don't think we need health claims on food products at all. They're not about health, they're about marketing products. If you really want to eat healthy, you're going to be eating real food. You're not going to be eating products with labels on them. I think her take is not shared by everyone, but it does show how hard it is to kind of reduce healthy eating to a simple icon and really to promote healthy patterns of eating. We likely need a whole bunch of broader initiatives, you know, nutrition education, cooking classes, and integrating food and nutrition into the healthcare system. That's NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you. Thank you, Juana. As Allison Aubrey mentioned, the topic of what we eat and what's considered healthy can be incredibly complicated. It's something Virginia Soul Smith has thought a lot about. She's the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. We asked her to speak with us earlier today. Thank you for having me. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because your book really teases out the fact that it just feels so hard to feel good about the food that we eat. And I, when I think about the idea of putting more rules in place or changing the rules around food, it doesn't really seem to address that. What's your take? No, 100%. I think that's right. I think when we put a label like healthy on a food, we're immediately triggering this whole larger cultural context around that word. And we're setting people up to feel shame, to feel like, is this something I can eat or not eat in a way that is really counterproductive to the goal of health. We can have this debate about what healthy should mean according to nutritional science and according to what the latest research says, but that's completely ignoring the context of most Americans' lives. I mean, the whole idea of a, quote, healthy food is deeply problematic in a country where a million teenagers every year develop eating disorders and nine million kids aren't getting enough food to eat on a daily basis. And, you know, the other thing that comes to mind for me is that when we boil down our discussions around food to just the nutrients, we are erasing the fact that food is not just about fueling our bodies. It is also our culture and its connection. And for me, at least, I find eating pleasurable. So how is how does one find a balance? Well, healthy eating should include all of those things. And I'll be really curious to see when we see what foods get this label how that aligns with you know, our different cultural understandings of foods and whose foods are deemed healthy and whose foods are not deemed healthy. I think it absolutely intersects with race and class in really important ways. I think you know, what we know is that 
when people have more restrictive mindsets and more rules about what they can and can't eat, that tends to fuel disordered eating in a whole variety of ways. So, Virginia, given all of that, what is your advice to people who are trying to do the right thing, who are trying to feed themselves well, but who are absolutely overwhelmed by what is often conflicting advice on just how to do that? I think the best thing most of us can do is just stop reading food labels full stop. I think getting ourselves fed and fed in ways that feel good is the most fundamental goal. Most of us are not able to meet that for a whole variety of reasons. And when we make that our top priority, getting a variety of nutrients tends to work itself out, you know, assuming that you can afford the food you need. You know, I know so many people, and frankly, even for myself, this is a conversation and a topic that takes up so much headspace, and frankly, it comes with a whole lot of heartache. So I want to ask you, is this a solvable problem? How do we eat and feel good about it when we get up from that table or from our desk or wherever we're having that meal? I think it is a solvable problem, but it's a problem that's happening on a lot of different levels. There's your individual struggle. Then we have to step back and say, this is also happening on a larger societal level. These are structural systemic issues that our society, that the FDA has decided to define health by these narrow nutrition-based standards, which are also weight-based standards. That's a larger issue we need to address where we start to shift away from thinking of health as this matter of personal responsibility, this thing I need to get an A plus on, and instead start thinking of health as a social issue and as something that's largely determined by genetics. It's also determined by social determinants, things like your economic status, again, your ability to access food, access healthcare. And I think we're really doing a disservice to the entire conversation about health when we get fixated on, well, how much fat should be allowed in a cookie in order for it to be counting as healthy. Like these, like, these are really minute issues and what's a much larger conversation. That is Virginia Soul Smith, author of The Eating Instinct, and she writes the newsletter Burnt Toast. There is also a podcast by the same name. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. In other news, the Biden administration is increasing efforts to fight scams targeting student loan borrowers. Fraud is flourishing, while borrowers wait for more details on the administration's sweeping plans for student debt forgiveness. NPR's Meg Anderson reports. The White House is going to cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt for as many as 40 million borrowers. But since that relief was announced in August, the government has released very little information about the application process. This Biden forgiveness thing is Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Fourth of July all rolled into one for the scammers. Betsy Mayotte is the president of the Institute of Student Loan Advisors. She says that vacuum of information has created an opportunity. Here's an example of a suspicious call one borrower in Texas shared with NPR. It's urgent that you return my call to complete your application prior to when payments resume. There are evil people who will be trying to use a program like this and run their own frauds and scams to somehow get money or personal information about people. And we want people to know how to steer clear of that. Richard Cordray is the chief operating officer of Federal Student Aid, a branch of the Education Department. 
To try to hold potential scammers accountable, the administration is increasing communication across agencies in the federal government. They also plan to coordinate more with states, so attorneys general there can bring their own cases. It's an all-of-government approach because what we know is it's already happening. But a lot of that work falls on borrowers themselves. The White House is planning on partnering with social media influencers to educate borrowers. Officials say don't give out your personal information to unfamiliar callers. And applying for debt relief is not going to cost money. One way to avoid some of these scams in the first place would be to release more information on the forgiveness application. We're moving at warp speed to get the application and the process going here to get as much relief as possible to the hardworking former students who deserve this relief. There are still no clear details about what the application for loan forgiveness will look like or when it will be released. Meg Anderson, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the new challenges of teaching abortion in med school. On Wall Street, stocks fell for a second day. The Dow lost the most ground, 1.15 percent, or 347 points, to close at 29,927. S&P gave up 1 percent to finish at 37.45. The Nasdaq lost 0.68 percent to end the day at 11,073. The investment firm Eaton Vance Corporation assigned a lease for more than 282,000 square feet in an office tower in Boston's Post Office Square. Eaton Vance is moving a few blocks from its headquarters at International Place and downsizing its office space by about 20 percent as part of the move. The Boston Business Journal says this is the third largest office lease deal in Greater Boston since the pandemic began. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. Patriots quarterback or backup quarterback Brian Hoyer is out for at least the next four weeks. Hoyer suffered a concussion Sunday against the Packers. If quarterback Mac Jones is unable to play against Detroit this Sunday because of his ankle injury, that means rookie third stringer Bailey Zappi could get his first start. In the forecast, should turn partly cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures about 57 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny and warmish in the mid-70s. Sunshine for Saturday, Sunday, and maybe Monday as well. Could have temperatures right about 60 degrees, 64 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater. Celebrate the grand reopening of the historic Huntington Theater and the legacy of August Wilson with Joe Turner's Come and Gone, a story of resurrection during the Great Migration. In this new production, helmed by director Lily Ann Brown, performances start October 14th, HuntingtonTheater.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Fox News found itself in an almost impossible spot after election night 2020. The network had just called the key state of Arizona for the Democrat, Joe Biden. Then all hell broke loose. Now a $1.6 billion defamation suit against Fox by a voting technology company is revealing more about how the network acted behind the scenes, including its CEO. And Piers David Folkenflik joins me. Hey, David. 
Hey, Mary Louise. Take us back to November 2020. What did all hell breaking loose look like for Fox? Well, it was an intense moment. You had uh, President Trump and his allies essentially denouncing Fox, which had been this very receptive channel uh, for the Trump campaign, publicly as well as privately. A lot of pressure being brought to bear on Fox's journalists, its anchors, uh, the Murdochs, who are the controlling owners. And Fox started to bleed viewers. You ultimately saw a couple of things. First, Fox, weeks later, ultimately purged two editors who were involved in the call of Arizona for Biden, although they never took back that call. And you saw many hosts chasing Trump loyalists, their core uh, Fox viewers. Some even went all in, like Lou Dobbs, who's now gone from the network, Maria Bartiromo, Janine Piru and some others still there. There was the airing of false conspiracy theories and lies about election fraud uh, from Trump and his allies. So what have we learned about how Fox responded to this crisis? Well, Dominion Voting Systems uh, is an election tech company that was at the center of some of these allegations that were ventilated on Fox and and given a lot of airtime. They're suing Fox for defamation. Fox says, hey, we're merely covering inherently newsworthy claims by the sitting president and his allies. We got to cover that. But as a result of this suit, as you suggest, we've learned a lot. Suzanne Scott is the CEO of Fox News Media. She uh, warned colleagues, we can't give the crazies an inch. Uh, Other executives at the network tried to stop Lou Dobbs and Maria Bartiromo from bringing on uh, Trump's uh, campaign attorneys, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, because they just say repeat lies. And NPR earlier revealed an email in which a producer begged her colleagues or begged colleagues not to let Pirro on the air after the election, saying that Pirro was just recycling untrue conspiracy theories taken from dark corners of the web. I mean, I guess, David, we already knew that false theories were being aired on Fox. So for the court case, legally, why does this matter? Well, it goes to this idea of actual malice, which plaintiffs, people suing uh, media outfits, have to prove in defamation and libel cases. The idea is you have to either show they knew that what they were putting out there was false and defamatory or hurtful, or that they acted with reckless disregard. In this case, Dominion's lawyers are arguing this all shows that Fox executives knew uh, what was going on and that they had influence over the shows. They knew that it was wrong. Uh, They're now getting contracts to try to prove uh, that the Uh, There were profit motives for these executives to get big ratings, but that they also had operational control written into their workplace contracts. Uh, You know, Fox's lawyers in court, we've been listening. They've been saying essentially, no, no, these guys are acting kind of like absentee landlords. They weren't micromanagers in that way. So quickly, what's the timing? What happens next? So Dominion is uh, trying to get more questions put to Jeanine Pirro and Sean Hannity under oath. Uh, they say that there are 60-some depositions ahead for the next 40 days of the trial process. And there's a court date still in April. A lot of legal wrangling to come. And PR Media correspondent David Folkenflick. Thank you, David. You bet. There are about 6,000 residents in the U.S. training to be OBGYNs. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has far-reaching implications for them. Katie Riddle has more. She was a third-year resident when Dr. Alyssa Caldwell knew reproductive health was where she was meant to be. Taking care of a woman who had four little children at home, was parenting alone, Um, was in an abusive relationship. Providing her an abortion, says Caldwell, helped this patient break free from that abusive partner. You know, and it's stories like that that stick with you for the rest of your life. 
Today, Caldwell is working to provide the same kind of experiences to her residents. She teaches obstetrics and gynecology at Oregon Health and Science University. This is our clinic uh, workroom. It's 8 a.m. In a few minutes, she and her team, including residents, will meet here to prepare for the day. Yeah, this is where the magic happens. She'll see 14 patients today. Some will be seeking abortions. She'll bring residents with her to every appointment. Among other things she's teaching these new doctors, empathy and compassion. There's only so much you can learn from a book, and medicine is is truly an art, and it takes years of experience to become competent, and not only competent, but really good at our job. Oregon has strong laws protecting abortion rights, but the path forward is unclear for doctors at teaching institutions in states where abortion is now restricted. When Roe fell, we texted each other like the moment that it fell, and we cried. Dr. Laura Jacques teaches obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we don't cry very easily in medicine. We're pretty stoic people. Abortion is now virtually illegal in Wisconsin. Without patients, there is no training. Jacques says they've been working for years to cultivate comprehensive medical education for future OBGYNs. And to have that just suddenly all of that work that we put into it just erased in an instant was incredibly demoralizing. An estimated 44% of OBGYN programs are in states where abortion is illegal or in jeopardy. The organization that accredits these programs says they are committed to requiring abortion training for OBGYNs. Institutions still have to find a way to provide it in order to meet accreditation requirements. Teaching hospitals are exploring options like simulations or sending residents to other states. There are no clear solutions. I truly cannot overstate how catastrophic the overturning of Roe v. Wade is for reproductive health at large and for medicine at large. Dr. Kavita Van Aker is with the group Physicians for Reproductive Health. There are aspects of what we do in abortion care that are used in so many other settings within OBGYN and reproductive health more broadly that are often life-saving. Vinaker says a doctor with limited abortion training may not know how to care for a patient experiencing a miscarriage, for example, or an ectopic pregnancy. Jessica McClowski is finishing medical school at Tulane University School of Medicine in Louisiana. She's not applying to residency in states where she can't get abortion training. She says many of her peers aren't either. They're willing to risk not matching into a residency to be at a place that will give them the training that they need to become abortion providers. It's not just future OBGYNs. McClowski's planning to become a pediatrician. She's especially interested in working with teenagers. It's a population that is extremely vulnerable to the lifelong impacts of unwanted pregnancies. I don't want to set up my patients for failure in the future because I'm not allowed to discuss things that will directly impact them. She says training in abortion is not just about learning clinical procedures. It's also about learning how to talk to patients. If I'm in a state that I could potentially be sued or worse for just discussing these things with a patient, it's really scary. Not just scary for the doctors, but scary for the people who need care. Advocates fear doctors will avoid training and practicing altogether in states where abortion is illegal. And that means real harm for patients. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. We've got some clouds moving in for the night. Still some clear spots around, though. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, clouds may linger in the morning, but then some sunshine for the bulk of the day. Some clouds around as well. Highs reaching the mid-70s. For the long holiday weekend, bright skies, cooler temperatures should be in the upper 50s to low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 66 degrees now in the Boston area at 6.30. Marketplace is coming up next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. And Gloucester Stage with The Thin Place, a haunting new play by Lucas Nath, part seance, part ghost story. Through October 23rd, tickets at gloucesterstage.com.